Welcome to Coastal Conversations, a monthly program that deals with major issues confronting the nation's coastal areas, marine and Great Lakes. This program is made possible through the generosity of the Roddenberry Foundation. I'm Jerry Schubel with the Aquarium of the Pacific, and I'm your host. Today we're going to explore the concept of coastal resiliency with an emphasis on New York, New Jersey after Superstorm Sandy. I have with me today Dr. Alan Bloomberg. Dr. Bloomberg is the George Mead Bond Professor and the Director of the Center for Marine Systems at the Stevens Institute of Technology. He's the founder of the New York Harbor Observing and Prediction System, NIHOPS. He also is a member of New York City Mayor de Blasio's third New York City panel on climate change, ensuring best available science informs public policies. This panel is to expand the focus to study climate adaptation and equity on a neighborhood scale, to enhance mitigation and resiliency across the entire metropolitan region. The mayor stated that it will continue to shape New York City's comprehensive resiliency plan, building on one New York City and integrating growth, resiliency, sustainability, and equity to further New York City's role as a global leader on climate change. It's a tall order, but he's enlisted some very capable people, including our guest today, Dr. Alan Bloomberg. Welcome, Alan. It's good to have you with us. Thank you. Nice to be here. And today, we would, uh, as always, like to start at the beginning. And uh, that seems like it's always a good place to start. You're one of the pioneers of this emerging discipline that we know as urban oceanography. Tell us from your perspective what that term means and why you call yourself an urban oceanographer. When you do, do your kids recognize you? Uh, they certainly do because I pounded it into their brain over many, many years. Basically, I call myself an urban oceanographer because I study the effect of water on urban environments and the effect of the urban environment on the water. They are both interrelated and strongly, strongly coupled, influencing one another. And the, the number of those urban areas is increasing around the world. Yes. The New York City, New Jersey area is certainly a textbook example of an urban ocean area. And we have another one right here in Southern California. Very different in its oceanography, but I think it qualifies as an urban ocean. And it's the part of the ocean that stretches from Santa Barbara to the U.S.-Mexico border. We've got the nation's two largest container ports, all of California's offshore oil islands and oil rigs. And um, we also ha have one of the, uh, the, the busiest uh, be set of beaches anywhere in the world. And pretty soon, we're going to have the largest ocean desal plant in the entire Western Hemisphere. So we do have the, uh, an urban ocean. But it's quite different from yours, both in the, the density of people and in the meteorology and the oceanography. We don't get those storms like Sandy here, or at least not very often. So that, I think, is one of the things that really distinguishes us from the East Coast uh, with all the hurricanes. And Sandy and Irene seem to be the tipping points for much of your, your research at Stevens. And remind us of how those storms impacted the New York, New Jersey region. If you look at the historical record, three of the largest nine events have occurred in the last 10 years. Weather is changing, our climate is changing, 
and these storms came to an area that was unprepared. Irene was a, a hurricane that brought huge amounts of rain, precipitation, very little storm surge. Sandy, on the other hand, was a huge storm surge without any rain. The predictions for Irene were, oh, big storm surge, and which never came, but there was tremendous flooding. And then people said, all right, you forecasters are not very good because there was not a big event. So when Sandy came, it was total chaos because people had in their mind that there would be no storm surge like the previous event. What, we had a slide up there a second ago. Let's put that back up. Tell us what, it, it, that looks like Sandy to me. So here, this is uh, Hurricane Sandy. By the time it came to New York, it was not even a hurricane, tropical storm, it was called. This storm came up the East Coast and at the last minute made a very sharp turn to the left, to the west, and came right into New York Harbor. It could not have picked a, a worse path for New York. We have done studies that showed if the hurricane came a little north, a little south, it could have done worse to other places and not different to New York City. So we understand Sandy. And Sa Sandy was the largest hurricane in, in history in terms of its geographic extent, right? The, the yes, diameter huge. of the... It, there were 44 people who died in New York City. This yes. is 2012. 44 people 44. died because of a meteorological event. And the predictions were quite interesting there, yes. right? Some yeah. were very good, especially as the hurricane came closer and closer. We forecast water level surges continuously for the past uh, eight years, and we were a little low. In fact, everybody was low on the surge, and we were learning how to do it better and better. These are some pictures from Hoboken. The, the picture on the top left is what we woke up to the morning after Sandy. Uh, welcome to Hoboken. Uh, nine feet of water on the ground came into Hoboken. Hoboken is the home of the Stevens Institute of Technology. Yes. Did you get flooded at all? Uh, no, because my university <laughs> founders went to the high ground. They were smart. They were smart. 150 yeah. years ago. So pull that, that slide back up, though. Uh, this, this, you know, in that lower left hand, all those, those cabs, uh, that, it's always hard to get a cab in New York. But during... <laughs> <laughs> well, but those cabs very important to me because they showed the weakness in our, in our prediction system. We were predicting at the site where the cabs originally were, about two to three feet of water, right near the waterfront. The cab owners, uh, owners said, we have to move the cabs. So they moved all the cabs to another location where nine feet of water came, all destroyed. <laughs> but I couldn't communicate that to people because I didn't know who to talk to. But we'll know we'll the know next, next time. But it, it's interesting. So in terms of the prediction, the path, when it took that left hook, that was one of, out of several different model runs, right? Yes, so yes. there was. It took some guts on the part of Noah to decide uh, that they were going to yeah. stay with that prediction. Uh, I would say that Noah is slow to to release information. The European Center released that hook two days before Noah did. And now to, our do, to do our forecasting, I bring in not only NOAA's weather model, I bring in the European model and several from other universities. We run all these in our models right. and then we have 66 answers. So the question is, which, <laughs> which is the right? Which, which is the right one, right. <laughs> We're learning how to do that now. But if you, have, you look across all of those and look for the, what would be the equivalent of an ensemble average or something, a mode. Yes, something. Um, and st stick right. with that. Yeah. So the prediction was pretty good in terms of the path. But not uh, the intensity. But not the intensity. Right, that's right. right. And uh, in general, is it harder to predict the intensity or the path? The, the intensity. Okay. I'm on a committee that 
uh, advises the National Weather Service, and we're meeting next week for a week, sequestered away to figure out what they should do as they move forward with their brand new supercomputer that are 10 times faster. All right. So then we've talked a little bit about how these storms affect the urban environment in your region of Manhattan and Hoboken, uh, and also about how they were forecasted. I think that uh, we have another slide there. Um, so what do we mean by resilience? Uh, it, everybody tosses the term around. From your perspective as a scientist, how do you define it? I, I view resilience as being prepared for an event and understanding when it's going to come and what it may do, and then recovering from that event once it happens. I don't believe we'll ever be able to stop the event, but we should be able to, to get our, on with our lives after it comes through. But it, should the, the, the criterion be how rapidly you can get back to normal? I mean, after Katrina, um, we spent a lot of money getting New Orleans back to normal. Was that the right thing to do? Uh, I think so, but I, I don't think they're ever going to get back to normal. Okay, all right. But have, in some cases, though, we're going to have to move some things around. We might have to. Uh, people are not good at moving, even <laughs> on the beach areas of, the, of New Jersey. People do not want to move. They would run or want to take their chances for the next storm, and then right. they'll rebuild right. the American way. The American uh, way. We know I that. think that the European way is different. In Holland, for example, they say, no, we're not moving. We're not, we want to be prepared for the worst. Where Americans say, no, well, we'll rebuild. But if you, if you look forward in time, sea level is going to continue to rise for decades, maybe, a couple, maybe centuries. And if you now superimpose Sandy on top of a higher sea level 50 years from now, might be a different story. Yes, I agree. It, it's, it's a story that you have to think about for this area. As sea level rises, regular storms are going to cause flooding. That's right. So we'll have to figure out, do you want to prevent flooding entirely? You may need a 20-foot wall around your city. Is that what you want? Or, or maybe a 10-foot wall with an ability to move when the event comes. And does, it depends in part upon the investment that society has made. We're not going to move Manhattan, I don't think, no. uh, at least for a long, long time. Right. There are other areas uh, where the population density is low and that um, maybe, maybe moving does make sense from some of those areas. Perhaps. I know that in, in New York City, along the Rockaways area, they are moving 40 houses out, destroying the houses, eminent domain. The people are not happy. Uh, they rather rebuild after the next storm. Uh, along the coast of New Jersey, nobody's going to move. They fight eminent domain. <laughs> So and it's, it's interesting. It's going on now on Fire Island, uh, the south shore of, of Long yeah. Island. People are being forced to move, and uh, they don't want to. They're being forced to sell their houses. And, yes. uh, so these are complicated uh, right. questions and issues. Dealing it is all about resiliency. How, much, how resilient do you want to be? Right. And do you th is New York City and uh, neighboring New Jersey, is it more resilient today than it was before Sandy? And if so, why? What's different now? Two, almost three years after Sandy, I would say that we're exactly where we were before Sandy came. People will be better prepared. They'll have flashlights and water, but they will get just, just as badly flooded as before. Nothing has been done. A huge amount of money has been allocated, and study after study has been conducted, but no shovels have been in the ground yet. So what's it going to take to go from having this in Improved information, scientific knowledge, better models, better forecasts, 
to some action to increase resiliency. Citizens and political leadership. That's what it'll take to make it happen. The citizens have to go to their politicians and say, now's the time, let's do something. And that groundswell is happening now in lower Manhattan and in on the Hudson River coast of New Jersey. It's beginning to happen, and I would say that in the next four to five years, huge amount of change will happen. Right. But it may not happen until after we have another uh, significant hurricane. So people think that Sandy will never come again. And my analysis shows that Sandy was like a 1% event. 1% can come every year, 1%. That's right. Just because we had one last year doesn't mean we won't have another one. My colleagues say, NOAA is predicting a quiet hurricane season this year, maybe four to five named storms. Well, uh, many years ago, it was the same prediction, and only one storm came. It was called Hurricane Andrew, which <laughs> devastated Wait, Florida. That's right. That, so you that, only need one. I think Andrew was the most expensive hurricane in, in yeah. history. And that year was quiet. Right. That year was quiet. <laughs> so we have to be ready. Right. And ready means many things. Right. And are you optimistic then that uh, New York City and New Jersey uh, will, will become significantly more resilient over the next decade? I do. I do. So I don't want to become a prophet of doom. I want to get ready and do something. And I believe it'll happen. I believe that the whole country will start to realize that scientists in the United States are good. And we can figure out how to do this. We don't have to keep looking to Europe, to Holland, and ask them how to help us. We'll figure it out. And is the political leadership uh, there with, now with uh, Mayor de Blasio and before him with Bloomberg? Yeah. Michael Bloomberg was a unique person. He really was a leader in climate change. Yep. And he wanted everyone to be aware and to figure out how to deal with it. Uh, de Blasio is following in those footsteps, but in a different way. Bloomberg put a law in New York City that said you have to have a panel on climate change. And they have to write a report every year that the city council has to approve and then embody. So this is why this New York City panel on climate change has, has been moving forward. De Blasio's big contribution is about social justice. If you notice, downtown Manhattan is where all Wall Street and all the money is. But right around the corner is very poor area, very low. And we have to figure out how to deal with that, too. And I, yeah, I think the environmental social justice is an important part of all of this. So we are mayor, uh, Robert Garcia, in his first State of the City address last January. He said, I want Long Beach to become a model of a climate resilient city. And then he added, and I've asked the Aquarium of the Pacific to take the lead in making that happen. And uh, so my question to you is, what, what's your advice to me? Should I get out of town fast? Uh, enter to the, the city. Our city is, you know, it's very different from New York, New Jersey, both in, in terms of size, but in terms of storms. Although, you know, and so most of our damage comes during El Nino's. And, and um, right now, the, uh, the warm water off the coast, uh, the projections are by NOAA that we could have one of the strongest El Ninos ever. This will be a test, and we, even with some fairly normal storms, we get flooding of parts of this city. What, 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 if we were hiring you as a consultant, what would be some of the things that you would recommend that Long Beach do? I would say first, don't get out of town. Let's figure <laughs> out how to do this. Uh, number one is good science. You've got to understand the problem. You have to understand the vulnerabilities. Right. And then we have to understand the difference between politics and science so that we can get something done. I would enlist the public. I would have community meetings and ask, what are you worried about? What do you want? 
and engage the public on, on one hand and the science on the other to make it work. It is not an easy task that no. you have. It's, it's not an easy task. And, and here we know that the most vulnerable people are the poorer people and the elderly, just like within in Katrina, uh, they were the ones that, that suffered the most. Yeah. And, and I think here, the vulnerabilities to climate change in Long Beach are quite different than they are in New York City. Probably number one here is drought. Uh, we're in the middle of, a, of four years into a major drought. I don't think you guys in New York, New Jersey are threatened with... I don't do drought. With, <laughs> you don't do drought. <laughs> I do the opposite. Yeah, you, right. <laughs> Flood. And, and, and uh, so sea level rise, flooding, those are on our list, but they're probably down maybe in, in the second or third uh, place. Mm -hmm. uh, you're focused strictly on storms, is yes. that right? What I would really ask is that you bring in science. Let the scientists help you figure out the plan. Oh, it, and we are. No, we're relying on some of the best scientists in, in California and even, even beyond. And that's one of the reasons we've got you here, to, to help us know what, what should be done. The challenges are huge. Yes? And yes, they are. And you have to figure out a plan. And we have and to have a plan. The plan needs to be transparent and actionable. Yes, absolutely. And I think uh, we, we're close to starting to involve the public. We've, we've been doing it on a small scale with groups of 30 to 50 people from the most vulnerable area of the city, and you'll be speaking to some of them uh, this afternoon. But then we've got to go beyond that. And one of the things that we've talked about is having something in the, in the area's newspapers every week uh, or every issue about climate change, what they should be worried about, what they should do, et cetera. Right. Did you get a lot of cooperation from the media in New York, New Jersey? Uh, there was many, many stories, many interviews, and you know what happens with the media, they change it around. <laughs> uh, but yes, there's a big focus, especially when Michael Bloomberg was in. Right. Very big focus on anything that had to do with the weather. All right, Al Alan, t tell us what some of the most powerful tools are for preparing for an event like okay. Sandy. Uh, given our technology of today, we've been able to develop models using supercomputers and data throughout the region measuring water properties to come up with ways to forecast pretty accurately what's going to happen on a street-by-street -street basis in an urban environment. Uh, this slide here shows Hoboken in the foreground, Manhattan in the back, and we've been able to forecast the water levels in Hoboken through to Sandy, for example, on a, the street-by-street -street basis. So in a particular street that could be 60 feet wide, we have water uh, across maybe 10 spots so that you can really understand what's going to happen in front of your stoop, in front of your condo, or in front of the whole city. Uh, the problem with our, our accurate forecasts is the problem is that it's very hard to communicate that information to the public. Uh, right now, we are thinking of ways actually to translate science information to the public in a way that they'll do something. Uh, public, to me, they don't like to be told what to do. Right. So you have to let them figure it out for themselves. So one way is to, to go to, to a Google map and you type in your address and up comes your house. And that's what happens now. The next one would be to hit enter and up comes a water level that's going to come into your foyer or your stoop. And that is the picture on the bottom left. And then at the end, you hit another enter and up comes the uncertainty. And then the question is, you decide what you want right. to do. Do you want to evacuate? Do you want to go to the third floor? It's your decision. 
How far away are we from having a, a system well, like that? I think we could do it pretty well. I've been talking to Google Crisis several times, and we're developing uh, interest in one another to do something like this. I think that would be really an important thing to do. I do too. Communications because, is everything. Right. Uh, Google is very interested in flood forecasting around the world, not necessarily in an urban environment like New York. They're really interested in going to areas where people could die. Now, New York did have deaths, but not as many right. as Tacloban in the Philippines. I'll say. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the best forecasts in the world are not of very much value unless that, those, that information gets to the people in ways that they can use it to protect themselves, their homes. And whether that's fleeing or going to the top floor or whatever it is, they ha it has to be meaningful to them. Absolutely. It's all about educating the public and letting them decide and do something. All right. So when we have an event then, how about recovering? How do we recover after an event? Right. Traditionally, our thinking is that an event occurs and we go downhill fast as we go across from left to right. So that, that bolt of lightning, that disruptive event, that's, right. sa that's Sandy. Sandy. It could be a terrorist event as well. Right. We, we drop down very quickly and we survive but we don't survive very well, and we plateau out, and we start to get to a point where we recover, little by little by little, and it's flat. We, every, every day a little bit more, and eventually we start to recover and go back to where we were, about where we were. And traditionally in, in the U.S., we don't ever make it back to where we were. We're less than where we were, but the goal should not be that. The goal should be to go better than where we were. And that's what we really have to focus on. We don't want to be less than we were or even equal to where we were. We want to use the opportunity to step up right. and make it better. So it's clear then that the horizontal axis, the x-axis, that's time. Yes. And the vertical axis here, that's some measure of reliability. Right. Or resilience. Or state or, or uh, faith, how right. happiness or something, right. some measure. And so that green line then off to the right, that's not just uh, moving to higher ground. That's a, a composite. Correct. Of moving to higher ground, of building walls, of, of having buses ready to evacuate people. It's, it's the grand total of, of all the pieces. So what for, from your perspective, back to New York, New Jersey, what are the next things that you're going to be doing over the next several years to make New York, New Jersey more resilient? So, no, number one will be to figure out pretty closely how much prevention you need. If you're going to build a wall, how high does it really need to be? So we're doing that. We are working with, with New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection, which has half, half a, almost half a billion dollars to do something meaningful to two areas of New Jersey. I'm working with the city of New York that has more billions to do something to Lower Manhattan, to Red Hook, different areas. So things are gonna to start to happen. So I'm excited to figure out what is the best combination of, of moving, of building, and of, of just being prepared. So barricades will play a, a significant role on New York, New Jersey, in your mind? I think so. And uh, how, how do you design the barricades so that you also don't cut off the port of New York, New Jersey from... Very, very <laughs> difficult situation. There's a big group in, in our area that wants to build a wall, a big walls uh, blocking uh, tidal gates, tidal barrages. To here comes the storm, let's, let's put them in place, stop the storm. And when the storm goes away, you open the gates again. But that doesn't help with sea level rise. No. So then there's big dichotomy there to figure that out. Now who's going to pay for it? 
Uh, us. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, and we have to decide. Uh, yeah, Our country right. is large, unfortunately, <laughs> because we have two coasts. Right. There's a lot of people live in the center who say, enough money on the coast. That's right. So we'll have to figure that out, but I think we can. We just have to decide what we want to do. I think that we have to decide and then have the courage and the political will to make it happen. To make it happen. And um, yeah. I, I like your idea of educating the public, articles in the paper, and make it in a way that people don't, they can understand it. That's the key. Make it so, they can, uh, so that yes. it is relevant and urgent. Yes. And uh, too often, I think, as scientists, we're not very good at making these issues relevant and urgent no, to the general public. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things we're starting to do here is to work more with artists, because I think artists can help convey some of these things in ways that um, we, in scientific terms, can't. I would also think maybe you could do uh, shows with the, te with the television weather. Here's, yes. the, here's the atmosphere, here's the ocean, and by the way, here's a 30-second snippet on, without saying this is educational, right. uh, that people become aware. Did you do anything with the television reports, or the weather reports on TV in New York? No, uh, I was on many, many of the, the weather channels during the events. And I tried to explain what was going on as fast as I could in those in those pieces when I was on TV. Well, I, I admire what what you've done, Alan, uh, and we hope that you will continue to fight the good fight. And we look forward to having you provide us. Thank you. With some good and I wish you a lot of luck in in this adventure that you're going to embark on. <laughs> well, thank you. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Alan Bloomberg, for joining me on this edition of Coastal Conversations. I also want to thank the Roddenberry Foundation for making Coastal Conversations possible. I hope you will join us next month for our next program. I'm Jerry Schubel for Coastal Conversations.